0: Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine Seminar Series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at rcpheritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Well, thanks very much to uh, Daisy and thanks to everybody for being here. I've been told that uh, I shouldn't move around very much because I'm in the spotlight, which uh, I'll have to work on that because I tend to sort of walk and talk. So I'll have to remain in light. Um, So as uh, Daisy indicated, I am a philosopher. That should not intimidate you. We will be doing some philosophy this evening. But it will be, uh, I think, philosophy with a light touch. We'll be thinking about um, some central issues in the philosophy of medicine, and more broadly, I guess, um, philosophical issues about human well being, what the difference is between being ill and being well. So, uh, the subject of the talk is, of course, grief. So, let's begin. Oh, there we go. Went, went one further there, but uh, there we are. So, let's begin with some uh, numbers. These are, I take it, distressing numbers uh, as of Monday. Uh, the worldwide death toll from COVID uh, amounts to just over 6 million people. Those who study grief and bereavement tell us that for each of those individuals who die, there are nine individuals who undergo uh, significant grief episodes. So though I'm not a mathematician, that seems to work out to about 57 million additional grief episodes in the world due to COVID. And my guess would be that, as with many things related to the pandemic, that's probably a pretty significant underestimate. That is both an underestimate probably in terms of the number of deaths, but also in terms of the number of people affected by those deaths in the way of uh, grief and bereavement. So we are confronting, I think, um, a large scale global grief event. I think for probably for most of us who are alive today, this is unprecedented, the um, increase in, deaths from COVID above sort of the natural or existing rate of death is not something that we've seen, say, uh, since World War II, or perhaps the, uh, the great, uh, last great pandemic in the world, which was the Spanish influenza epidemic that occurred uh, between 1918 and 1920. So we are certainly looking, I think, at what we can uh, safely call a large-scale global grief event. Now, one interesting feature of uh, COVID and grief uh, that I won't be particularly touching upon, not because it's not important, but because it's simply not my topic this evening, are the various disruptions that COVID brought to grief and bereavement. So uh, for most parts of the world, um, COVID represented an anomalous way of dying in the sense that um, in most of the more prosperous parts of the world, people don't tend to die primarily from infectious illness. They tend to die from you know, cancer and heart disease and other kinds of chronic illnesses. And so the experience of uh, dealing with individuals who are dying or dead uh, due to infectious disease was perhaps uh, novel in certain respects. And this caused, I think, a lot of disruption to grief and bereavement itself. So just looking at uh, what you see here up on the slides, you see there in the um, upper left, a woman who uh, is um, separated by a plastic partition from a loved one who is uh, stricken with COVID and would later die. You see in the lower left there, a socially distanced funeral. This was the norm for uh, much of uh, the pandemic in many parts of the world. Or for those who uh, were unable to attend because of travel restrictions, they of course would often participate in funerals via uh, a live stream, as you see in the upper right. And then there were some, I think, especially distressing um, phenomena related to the ways in which Uh, the fact that the the COVID corpse, if you will, is is infectious, is biohazardous, necessitated some alterations in the ways in which uh, human corpses were interred. So in the lower right there, you see um, a photograph of one of the um, uh, sort of mass uh, cremation sites in India, uh, which uh, had to be put in place because there were simply not enough Um, opportunities to cremate people uh, in the ways that families would typically desire according to uh, Indian Hindu culture. And so um, you had these uh, sites that were in effect uh, kind of mass funeral pyre locations. So there are great many disruptions to grieving due to COVID. And that I think is an important and uh, worthwhile issue to think about. But what I want to focus on this evening is actually somewhere else. I wanna focus in particular on some language that you start, you've started to see um, some experts and some members of the media use to talk about this global grief event. You're starting to see members of the media use this phrase, grief pandemic. So these are uh, headlines drawn from uh, respectively the United States uh, here in the UK and uh, Australia, each of which are instances of Uh, medical experts and journalists, describing what it is that we are looking at, this global grief event, as a global pandemic. And it's that pandemic language that I want to put under the philosophical microscope tonight. I want to uh, invite us to think uh, critically and carefully about whether we should embrace this particular language of a grief pandemic. To use language of a pandemic, of course, is to use medicalized language, right? To describe this phenomenon in ways that uh, invite us to think of this global grief event as a medical event. And what I want to do is to give you all some reasons to chew on as to why I think we should resist this particular way of talking about the global grief event as a pandemic. So what I'll be doing is in effect this, or my primary goal will be to do this. I want to argue that this epidemiological turn, right? Sort of thinking of the pandemic as itself, a uh, sorry, as pandemic grief as itself a kind of epidemiological event in its own right, that we should uh, resist this particular talk. And in particular, we should uh, resist conceptualizing this mass grief event as a pandemic. My reasons for this will rest on the idea that this represents an unfortunate misguided tendency to medicalize grief right, a tendency to think of grief as itself a kind of medically problematic condition. So that's where the sort of uh, heavy-duty philosophy will be this evening, to try to persuade you that uh, we ought not medicalize grief, and as such, this language of a grief pandemic is language that we should not be particularly sympathetic toward. So roughly, here's the plan. I want to begin by giving you a little bit of philosophical, but also, I suppose, historical and cultural background about the notion of medicalization and a little bit of background about what some philosophers have said about the nature of disease. Then, I suppose, the heart of the talk will be in part two when I uh, give you some reasons as to why it is that grief shouldn't be medicalized. And at the very end, and somewhat briefly admittedly, I'll be talking a little bit about the ways in which I think there's a unfortunate trend embodied in this talk of a grief pandemic, an unfortunate trend wherein we relocate large scale social problems as matters of individual pathology. So let's just begin with this notion of medicalization. So those who study um, medicine from a social scientific perspective, sociological, anthropological, historical, often note that uh, different conditions over time are medicalized or demedicalized. That is to say different conditions are at various points in history or in different cultures treated as medically significant conditions as illnesses or diseases. So to give you just a few examples of conditions that have been medicalized, Alcoholism, right up until roughly the middle of the 20th century, was generally seen as some sort of moral failure on the part of the alcoholic or uh, if you tended toward a more uh, more elaborate, I suppose, religious worldview as an indication of uh, possession or you know, some sort of uh, um, uh, deficiency of character, you know, due to sort of your, your place in the, in the uh, religious order. But around about the middle of the 1950s, 1960s, uh, a number of researchers and clinicians began to say, well, I think we now understand that alcoholism is the consequence of a number of factors, you know, genetic makeup, exposure to alcohol at different ages and that sort of thing. And what we have here is an instance of medically significant addiction. So, you know, it became quite commonplace and I think it is now commonplace, right? To think that alcoholics are suffering from a disease. Obesity, right, is another example of this. Um, I think in recent generations we've begun to think that obesity is a bit like alcoholism in the sense that it's the byproduct of genetic factors, lifestyle factors, environmental factors. It's not necessarily an indicator that someone is of, uh, you know, sort of bad character or has vices such as, you know, gluttony or lack of self-control or any such thing. It is understood and, and treated in many quarters as a disease. Menopause was a condition that, up until the middle of the 20th century, was similarly thought of as, well, just a kind of stage in in women's lives, uh, not something that medicine should be concerned with in particular. And then finally, infertility and sexual dysfunction, right, um, were, um, for most of human history, not really thought of as medically significant problems. They were misfortunes, perhaps, but not to be thought of as subject to medical treatment. Now that's just a tiny uh, uh, scratch on the surface, really, of the conditions that have become medicalized over time and and place in history. The number of demedicalized conditions is not quite so many, but there are a few that we can um, take note of. One is homosexuality, right? So um, in uh, the English-speaking parts of the world, homosexuality was until the 1950s or 60s, included uh, as a mental disorder, right, in diagnostic manuals and so on. And then we can also, I think, view childbirth, at least to some degree, as a phenomenon that has been demedicalized, at least for for some women. Many women opt for um, birthing um, experiences right, that are demedicalized in a large degree without um, obstetricians necessarily present, without um, uh, analgesics or um, other kinds of drugs used to treat pain. So those are some examples of conditions that have been demedicalized. But I think that any fair reading of history will tell us that the trend is and continues to be in the direction of medicalization, right? The the number of conditions listed in um, medical um, uh, diagnostic guides continues to grow, and every time uh, these uh, guides are revised, nearly always more uh, conditions are added than are taken out, right? Now that of course raises the interesting sort of question, you know, are we getting sicker? Right? I mean, on balance, do we, are we in fact sicker than we were in the past? Or are we simply noticing only now that we were sicker than we thought we were all along? So that's the phenomenon of medicalization. Now, there are always going to be and, and continue to be disputed cases, right, of, of what are classified in some, uh, some societies and some uh, medical cultures as disease. So just to give you a sense of some recent controversies in this area, uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is included in uh, most of the uh, diagnostic manuals used throughout the world. It's thought of as kind of developmental disorder. Um, but there are um, persons with, with some credibility, I think, who believe that uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is merely in one uh, indication or one uh, point, right, along a kind of spectrum of human personality that there are some people who have difficulty paying attention and and keeping still and so forth, and this is not a medical problem, but simply a kind of variation, right, in the human species. Some of these critics in particular um, believe that attention deficit hyperactivity disorder amounts to kind of pathologizing the normal condition of, well, young boys, right, since overwhelmingly they are the ones who are diagnosed with this condition. Restless leg syndrome is another one. Uh, that has been subject to much controversy. Uh, Some believe that, again, this is probably uh, not an illness exactly, but again, a kind of variation in sort of people's uh, neurology or uh, the ways in which their nervous system functions. Premenstrual discomfort is one that continues to be debated in some circles. Uh, Are women who undergo this kind of discomfort actually ill or is it simply uh, a part of, of the experience of being a woman of childbearing age? And chronic fatigue disorder, baldness, all of these are examples of conditions that are still sort of open to dispute, right? That people um, don't exactly agree upon, right? There's not clear consensus as to whether or not these are diseases or illnesses or not. Now Ivan Elick, whose uh, book I have uh, on the slide here, wrote this book in the 1970s called Limits to Medicine. And Elick didn't develop the term medicalization, but he was, I think, the one, who, uh, the one scholar who probably deserves the most credit for second-guessing right, the trend toward medicalization. He uh, described what was going on in his eyes in um, medicine as disease-mongering, right, sort of finding more and more right, illnesses over time, um, many of which he thought were not really illnesses. They were simply variations, again, in the human species, that uh, may cause people difficulties of different kinds, but didn't deserve to be treated as illnesses. So as he would often say, um, he thinks that thought of medicalization as medicine's attempt to recast what is normal in human life as pathological. Now, the question at hand for us will turn out to be whether we should think of grief as a kind of illness or disease, or whether instances of grieving can be illnesses or diseases but I don't intend to offer a thorough accounting uh, this evening of of medicalization or which conditions should be medicalized or not, but I want to focus instead on uh, a specific way that we should think, in my estimation, we should think about um, the question of medicalization and illness and disease, and then apply um, that particular set of insights to the phenomenon of grief. Now, it's important, I think, to realize that The power of diagnosis and classification of illness is very, very central to medical practice, Without illness, without disease, what is medicine? Well, not much, right? It's sort of hard even to know what medicine would do with itself or why it would have the social significance or power or authority that it has in the absence of illness or disease. So I think many sociologists and philosophers of medicine have concluded that of the powers that we assign to medicine, the most powerful ones are the powers to classify some phenomenon as a disease to say of some condition of a person that they are ill. And then, secondarily, to diagnose individuals as having that condition. Right? Without those two aspects of medical practice, there really isn't much to medicine. But that then raises a question that, while important to medicine, is not really a question within medicine, right? And that's the question well, what is disease, right? Can we understand what it is for a condition to count as Rightly, a disease or an illness. When we look at, again, you know, attention deficit disorder, restless leg syndrome, and so forth, what criteria right, should we deploy in thinking about whether or not these are in fact illnesses? Okay. Now, if we had you know gobs and gobs of time, uh, we could hash out different ways that philosophers and theorists of medicine have thought about the nature of disease but I'm going to proceed in a somewhat more dogmatic way by offering forth uh, what I think is the most plausible view about the nature of illness and disease and then proceed to ask whether uh, or or what that particular view about the nature of illness and disease implies about grief. So the model that I'm going to urge us to adopt is uh, what is often called the hybrid model, okay, of medical disease. And what it says to us is this, that in order for some phenomenon to be a medical disease, it must first be a dysfunction of one or more bodily systems. There must be some respect in which one's body is uh, not functioning as it ought. And then secondly, that this must be a condition that is harmful to those that have it. So as I said, I don't mean to hash out uh, all of the philosophical issues raised by this particular model of of, uh, the nature of disease But, just to sort of motivate it a little bit for you, there do seem to be conditions of individuals that are dysfunctional, but not obviously harmful. So, for example, uh, occasionally, right, people will have hormonal uh, conditions that lead them to be unusually tall. Arguably, their hormonal systems are dysfunctional. Right, they're not uh, functioning in the way that they were intended. But it's not clear that being unusually tall is typically harmful to people exactly. Admittedly, right, it's gonna be a little bit tougher to squeeze into an airplane seat. Maybe you'll stand out a little bit among your classmates when you're young. But it's not clear that being atypically tall is exactly a harm to you. Nor, I would say, being you know roughly how tall I am is being unusually short. Okay. Likewise, right, there are behaviors that um, are um, not dysfunctional, right, but perhaps are harmful to people. So uh, it's been debated in in psychiatric uh, circles for some time whether we should think of compulsive sexual behaviors, right, sort of you know compulsively seeking sex, sex addiction if you want to call it that, whether this really amounts to an illness, right. Well it's not clear that one's body is dysfunctional, right, when you have a lot of sexual desire or you seek out a lot of sexual partners. But maybe it's harmful to you, right? Uh, People who report having this condition kind of wish that they didn't have it. They think that it's kind of an encumbrance on their lives. So what seems to be clear is that dysfunction and harm can come apart, right? There are conditions that are dysfunctional, but perhaps not harmful. There are conditions that are harmful to people, but not dysfunctional. But when you bring those two together, it seems credible to think that what we have in, uh, what we are in the presence of is a disease or an illness. And I think when you think about the uh, conditions that we would all agree are pretty clearly diseases or illnesses, they will satisfy the two criteria of the hybrid model. They will all be harmful dysfunctions. When you think about diabetes, well, that's a dysfunction of uh, your uh, system for producing insulin, right? Uh, And it's clearly harmful to people. You know, gone untreated, diabetes is is certainly um, quite uncomfortable and in some cases fatal. So too for most infectious illnesses, right, those are clearly in many cases harmful to people, uh, involve dysfunctions of uh, bodily systems, attacks on tissues within the body, cancer, heart disease, the other sort of major things that tend to be responsible for people's deaths nowadays, all of these seem to fit this category of harmful dysfunction. So it does seem to me that, you know, again, some philosophical subtleties notwithstanding, that the hybrid model looks like a pretty promising way to think about illness or disease. Now the question at hand, uh, going back to our initial observations about uh, talking about this mass grief event as a pandemic, is whether we should think that grief ever meets these conditions. You'll note that in uh, the way in which I'm speaking here, uh, we needn't think that grief necessarily or always meets the conditions for being uh, a pathology or an illness. It could be the case that it only sometimes does. So what I think we're interested in is whether in a kind of generic way, right, thinking about grief in its typical manifestations, we should think that a person who is uh, undergoing grief is ever sick, okay? Well, what I think we need to do then is apply our definition in a systematic way. Should we think that grief is a harmful dysfunction? Well, one of the things that one learns when you study grief and bereavement is that it does have a quite remarkable range of uh, physiological effects on our bodies, many of which are adverse. So uh, it's been observed that in the course of grieving, many people report or exhibit cognitive difficulties. They have difficulty remembering things. They you know, f- seem to misplace their, 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 their car keys or their wallets or whatever. Uh, sometimes their reasoning processes seem to be slower than they otherwise would be. There are effects on the cardiopulmonary system um, in the throes of particularly strong grief episodes. People will have increased heart rate or shortness of breath. Uh, Disrupted sleep, insomnia, inability to sleep, or disrupted sleep is not uncommon as are um, negative effects on digestion. And I think in general, right, what we see in many bereaved people is what we could probably call a kind of stress reaction. And in the worst case, uh, worst cases I suppose, uh, it has been noted that uh, sometimes grieving seems to be a precursor to to death. Um, So no doubt you may have heard, and, and this is an entirely mythic, um, occasionally, individuals will suffer the death of someone particularly close to them, say a spouse, and uh, not too long after that death, uh, the bereaved individual undergoes uh, a period of decline in health that seems to kind of culminate in, in their dying right earlier than they might otherwise have. So it seems clear that we can think that grief is at least associated right with uh, a number of conditions of our bodies, a number of physiological conditions that are certainly not good for us in a certain way. But I would want to contest that these represent dysfunctions. So why think that these various physiological changes that are associated with grief aren't themselves dysfunctions? I think in order to understand this, we have to uh, make reference to a problem in the philosophy of medicine known as the reference class problem. So if you weren't paying attention now, this is probably the moment to pay attention because things will get ever so slightly a little bit trickier. Okay? When we talk about dysfunction, we can only really define a dysfunction relative to what's sometimes called a reference class. Right? We have to say right, of some condition that it's a dysfunction with respect to or in comparison to some class of individuals that we're thinking of. I think the clearest way to uh, appreciate this is with uh, respect to conditions at, if you will, the beginning and the ends of life. Those are sort of the cases where I think the notion of a reference class is most perspicuous. So suppose that you are a developmental psychologist or an educational psychologist, and you have before you two young people, one of whom is five years old and is struggling to learn how to read, and the other of whom is 12 years old and is struggling to learn how to read. Well, the five-year-old is probably not developmentally uh, disabled given the reference class that would seem to fix his or her situation. It's not all that uncommon for people early elementary school age, five-year-olds, to uh, take a little while to to master the basics of reading. And so, right, if you were a psychologist looking at a five-year-old, you would probably say to yourself, well, you know, this is something to keep an eye on, right? We want to make sure that this person eventually uh, is able to read and able to uh, function well enough in the world. But as yet, we don't have reason to think that this person is is, um, suffering from a developmental disorder. But the answer, of course, might be a bit different with respect to that 12-year-old patient. Right? By that uh, moment in a person's development, they typically will right, develop the ability to read in their native language. And right in light of that, if you were an educational psychologist, a developmental psychologist, your reference class for that individual would be you know, sort of early adolescence or something like that. And then what you might say is, yes, there is something uh, dysfunctional going on here, or at least we have reason to think that there is. Okay? We can also see that same uh, point illustrated about, that point about reference classes illustrated when we think about um, conditions associated with, with aging, right? With the, the uh, later stages of, of human life. So suppose that you're a physician and you're considering two patients, one of whom is 35 years old and has sort of mild chronic joint pain, and the other of whom is 75 years old and has mild chronic joint pain, okay. Should you think that one or the other or both of these individuals has, say, arthritis, okay? Well, given the reference class for a 35 year old, this would seem to be a more troubling presentation, right? Typically, uh, 35 year olds don't, right, uh, have these kinds of difficulties with the flexibility of their joints and inflammation of their joints and so forth. It's not unheard of, of course. But, you know, as a physician, you'd probably look at that and that would raise an eyebrow, right? You'd be wondering, hmm, you know, is there something going on with this person that needs uh, further investigation, further interrogation? If the patient on the other hand is 75 years old, then it it seems to me that the physician would rightly look at that patient in a different light. Most all of us, right, will have reduced joint flexibility, greater tendency toward inflammation, greater tendency toward pain in the joints as we age. And so it may not be the case, right, that that 75-year-old should be diagnosed with arthritis exactly, perhaps, perhaps not. But the relevant reference class is going to be, well, not 35-year-olds, but 75-year-olds. So what this point about reference classes, I think, underscores is that when we think about uh, what it is for a condition to be dysfunctional and hence what it is for something to count as an illness or a disease, we can't simply think about the individual in front of us. We have to also think about what reference class it is that we're using to make sense of who they are, right? What sorts of things we should expect out of individuals with this sort of physiology or at this life stage or have undergone certain kinds of experiences and so forth. And this is a pervasive problem, right, within the philosophy of medicine, right? Everywhere you go in the philosophy of medicine literature, people talk about this reference class problem, okay? Now, I want to turn in a moment to, um, back to our discussion of, of grief, our, our ostensible subject. But before we do that, I think that what we just learned about reference classes shows us that we need to alter ever so slightly that definition of disease or illness that I gave a moment ago. So remember that we began by saying that a condition of uh, someone's being ill is that the phenomenon in question is a dysfunction of their bodies. But I think we should actually say that it's a dysfunction of their bodies as measured against the relevant reference class. Right? That seems to be the more exact, more precise way to cash out what it is that we are driving at when we think about some condition being dysfunctional. So what might that say about grief? Right? Should we think that grief is dysfunctional, right? Again, with reference to what seems like the appropriate reference class. Well, what's the relevant reference class for thinking about grief? If you were a clinician, a psychologist, say, or uh, someone involved in end-of-life care, perhaps, uh, what group of people would you think of as the uh, individuals with reference to which we should evaluate whether grieving is dysfunctional? Well, of course, if we look at all human subjects, then the answer seems to be that grief does seem dysfunctional, right? If I had, you know, an auditory impact with individuals and, you know, just I picked one at random and they told me, well, I've had shortness of breath and insomnia and some anxiety and, uh, you know, heart palpitations and, you know, upset stomach and all these other sorts of things, I would say, wow, that, you know, are you okay, right? You know, there seems to be something going on there, right? Something medically or clinically significant. But at the same time, that doesn't seem to me to be the right reference class in the case of grief. Right? The right reference class in the case of grief seems to instead be those human subjects that have undergone the loss of someone who matters to them. To give you sort of an, an uh, analogy here to, to drive that idea home, consider the condition we now call post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay? Well, this is a diagnosis that requires putting the patient's history into context. One wouldn't think that uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder should be ascribed to someone who hasn't undergone anything traumatic. It's sort of a condition of their having this illness that they've undergone um, a traumatic event or been a witness to a traumatic event. So it doesn't seem in the case of post-traumatic stress that the right reference class is all of humanity, but rather people who've undergone traumatic events. So too, I would suggest in the case of grief, right? Sure, grief looks like a dysfunction if we compare a grieving person to just anybody picked at random. But I don't think we should be comparing them to anybody who picked at random, any more than we should compare the person who has PTSD to anybody picked at random. We should be comparing them to individuals who've undergone trauma. So too, I think we should comparing the individual with grief to other individuals who have undergone whatever take, uh, seems to be the pertinent experience in this case namely the loss of someone who is close to them, okay? And I think when we look at it in that light, then it seems to me to be less plausible to think that there's anything dysfunctional going on here. Okay? This is to say that people's histories make a difference, right, to how we conceptualize whether they are sick or not. Okay? So I take that to be um, a fairly good argument, I hope it's a good argument, for the thought that grieving doesn't typically or usually satisfy that first condition of the hybrid model, right? It's not uh, dysfunction with reference to the the, uh, reference class. That seems to be the right one here. Now, you remember the other, pardon me there. You remember the other part of the definition is that the dysfunction has to be harmful, has to be bad for the person who has it. Now, what should we say about this condition in connection with grief? Well, it's certainly true that grief nearly always feels bad, right? Uh, The emotions that are most strongly uh, associated, right, found in grieving are things like sorrow and sadness. That's, I guess, the paradigmatic one. But of course, people also undergo other emotions in the course of grief grief episodes, many of which are are not fun emotions to have either. They will undergo, uh, you know, guilt, anxiety, worry, disorientation, uh, any number of other emotions that are typically emotions that we don't tend to welcome. So grief nearly always feels bad, is that sufficient ground for saying then that grief is harmful to us? Well, one thing to notice here is that the relationship between something's feeling bad and it's being bad for us is a bit trickier than we tend to recognize. Okay. So there are some unfortunate individuals who are uh, born, it's a congenital condition, uh, with what's known as congenital insensitivity to pain. Right? They have an inability to feel physical pain. Now, at one level, that might sound like a good thing. None of us are big fans of pain. But on the other hand, they've also been deprived of their body's alert system for threats to their tissues, threats to their bodies, right? They're not uh, uh, going to undergo right, the painful experiences right, that you and I undergo when, uh, say, we, we stub our toes or you know, we break an arm or something like that. And of course, that pain has a point. Right? That pain is uh, a way of alerting us right, to the fact that there is something uh, dysfunctional going on in our bodies. So congenital insensitivity to pain, although you have the benefit of, of not undergoing pain, it doesn't seem to me is a good condition to be in. We wouldn't want to be insensate to pain. It wouldn't be good for us. Likewise, think about something like fever. Fever, it seems to me, is arguably, in many ways, a good sort of discomfort or pain. We need it. It alerts us to the fact that our body is uh, fighting off some infectious uh, agent or some foreign agent. Again, it doesn't feel good to have a fever, and at its limit, of course, it can itself be a dangerous condition. But at the same time, we wouldn't think that it'd be a good thing for us to be deprived of fever altogether, right? It's an important indicator of something going on to our bodies. Now, I would argue that grieving is probably very much like uh, these particular uh, kinds of phenomena as well. Grieving is our psyche's way of telling us that something very important has happened, right? It's our psyche's way of telling us, you know, somebody that matters a lot to you is no longer present, is now absent. And I would suggest that grief, right, seems to play the same sort of role uh, psychically or a similar sort of role psychically as physical pain or fever does with respect to physiological illness, right? It's there in some sense to draw our attention, right, to something that we should attend to. Now, before uh, saying a little bit more about the application of these remarks to grieving, we earlier needed to revise our hybrid model to deal with the reference class problem but now I think we need to revise it in a second way. What I think we should be saying when we talk about harm is not whether the, the uh, condition of the person is harmful just as it is, but whether it's harmful all things considered. right? Taking into account perhaps the benefits right, that the person enjoys as a result of the condition in question. Okay? So notice that we've moved there from saying, is this a harmful condition taken as such, or just taken as is, to taking into account all of its effects on us, is it a harmful condition to have? Well, I think there's good evidence from psychology that uh, there are a number of psychological benefits that accrue to us because we grieve. One way I think to uh, understand some of these benefits is to make reference to what's sometimes called the dual process model of grief. It's a model that I find fairly attractive. What the dual process model basically says to us is something like this. Grief is an event, right, or an episode where we oscillate between two kinds of orientations or two kinds of uh, outlooks. On the one hand, one thing that goes on in grieving is that we are trying to address or understand the loss that is represented to us, or uh, represented for us, by the uh, death of someone who matters to us. So this is the um, material that is over here on uh, the uh, gray part of this particular diagram, where... What's going on in this part of grieving is people often sort of experience, you know, intrusive thoughts of this person whose, whose death prompts their grief. They're trying to sort of um, uh, uh, process, right, the sort of sadness and, and kind of sense of, of their world of be, as having been diminished or damaged in some way. But at the same time, or uh, again, it's kind of oscillating process. People are also, in the course of grieving, um, trying to build toward a future in which that individual is no longer present, or at least not present in quite the same way. Right? There's a way in which what we're doing when we're grieving, according to the dual process model, is also altering our lives Right? to take into account that this person is no longer present in our lives. So this will involve undertaking perhaps new activities, uh, establishing new relationships, taking on new aspects of one's identity, And what the dual process model, in effect, says to us is that we kind of do both of these things at different moments in the course of grieving, but as time goes on, the the backward-looking part, the part that's oriented toward the loss, kind of recedes, right, and the forward-looking part becomes more prominent, okay? Now, this, it seems to me, is uh, one picture, a fairly attractive picture, of the ways in which grief seems to be beneficial to us. It allows us to grasp, right, fully, Uh, something that we have lost, right? To understand fully the significance of the individual who has has died, but also to figure out a way in the world, right? To figure out how to live in the world in the light of their death. Now, um, in my own book, depicted in this slide here, uh, I argue that um, there are other ways in which I think grief is valuable to us too. I think that grief contributes to our ability to understand ourselves. So when we are grieving, what is going on is that a relationship in which we had invested ourselves uh, has to change or has to alter. We cannot relate to a person who is dead in the same way that we can relate to someone who is alive. And what this tends to do is it tends to lead us to uh, question exactly uh, why that person mattered to us, try to understand better why they mattered to us, and then to figure out again what our lives are going to look like going forward. And the upshot of this, I think, is a kind of enhanced self-knowledge or self-understanding. Likewise I think grief has the potential to strengthen our ties to other people. We may well be grieving someone uh, that, uh, whose death is uh, also significant to someone else. They too may be grieving, and this is a way to uh, enrich or enhance our relationships to them. But the overall picture here that I would like to um, advocate for is that we should think of grief as a tool for dealing with loss. And it would be unfortunate, I think, if we thought that grief's uh, sufferings, which of course are not insignificant or trivial, if we thought that those sufferings sort of had no wider aim, no wider purpose, no wider value for us. I think they do have a wider aim or purpose or value for us. And the significance of that then is that this seems to me to be uh, good evidence in favor of the thought that when we look at grief in its totality, not just sort of thinking about, again, the uh, pains associated with grief, the psychological pains, or the physiological changes that seem to be um, unwelcome. When we think about in its totality, thinking about both the ways in which it's detrimental to us but also the ways in which it's beneficial, then it seems to me plausible, right? That, in fact, what we're dealing with is a condition that isn't typically bad for us. Now, if we bring these strands of reasoning together, what do we have then? Well, I hope to have given some good reasons to think that, on the one hand, grief is not a dysfunction for most individuals when we think about the relevant reference class, again, that being those who suffered a significant loss. And in most cases, it's not going to be on balance harmful to us which doesn't of course mean that there aren't some harms associated with it or some parts of it that are um, perhaps very harrowing. But at the same time, uh, we will, I think, typically find it to be a beneficial um, thing to grieve and to grieve in a way that is robust and meaningful. Now what this means then is I'm not sure that either condition, right, of the revised hybrid model of disease that I put forward is satisfied with respect to grief. What that seems to suggest, then, is that we should be very hesitant to think of grief as a disease, and in turn, we should be hesitant to use this language of a grief pandemic to the extent that that language seems to imply right, that grief is a disease. Okay. Now, I wanna raise a, uh, here a final set of worries about medicalizing grief. There's an assumption, I think, that's tacit right, in discussions of medicalization that may strike you as kind of obvious, but is important, nevertheless, to bring to the surface. The assumption is something like this, that if something is an illness, right, if it is a disease, then we should be treating it with medical interventions and techniques. That doesn't seem to be obviously the case in every instance. For one thing, we may not have available to us good treatments, right, for the condition in question. Uh, We should be hesitant to uh, treat uh, something that is an illness uh, if in fact we don't have good reason to think that the available treatments are good treatments. One of the things I think that I would invite you to think about is what you would suppose would be a good treatment for grief, were in fact an illness. Those who've advocated for um, the medicalization of grief are often enthusiasts for the use of antidepressant drugs, anti-anxiety drugs. The more important point for our purposes though is the second bullet point here. That sometimes medical treatment is itself harmful, right? Or has untoward what we might call side effects. So let me outline what I think some of these harmful side effects could be of medicalizing grief. So the first side effect has to do with a notion that was identified by the philosopher of science, Ian Hacking in the 1970s. Hacking made what I think is a, you know, in retrospect kind of looks like an obvious observation, but once you think about it, it's actually pretty profound. So think about uh, what it is to classify, uh, let's say, a pathogen as a pathogen responsible for an illness. Right? So when we figured out that the HIV virus was responsible for AIDS, okay, we you know, said, okay, this pathogen is the one that is responsible for people developing AIDS. That doesn't change the pathogen right, the pathogen doesn't care, right, the pathogen doesn't, you know, sort of have a light bulb moment saying, oh, I'm responsible for causing this illness, right, there's not not a conscious being, right, nothing is altered about the pathogen, right, by our discovering this. Diagnosing human beings is different. We are conscious beings, right, and when we are told that we are diagnosed with a certain illness, typically that changes in various ways our relationship to that condition. So think back, right, to one of the examples I gave near the beginning of the talk of a condition that has become medicalized, namely alcoholism, right? Imagine the change in your mindset in being told, say, if you were a patient uh, being treated for alcoholism in the 1950s, imagine the change in your mindset from being told, well, you know, you're not a bad human being, you have a genetically-based addiction. Notice that that's Invites us, I think, to relate to our condition a different sort of way, or would invite the alcoholic to relate to his or her condition a different sort of way, right? Not as a kind of moral failing, but again as something that has arisen from physiological facts about themselves. Okay? And so what hacking means when he uses this phrase looping effects, right, is that when we use what he calls humankinds, right, terms like alcoholic and so forth we are in a way, right, leading or encouraging uh, individuals to think about themselves in certain sort of light, right? To think of oneself as ill, I think, is different than to think of oneself as, say, lacking in moral character, okay? So he's making, I think, the fairly obvious point that medical diagnoses affect our self-conceptions, right? They affect how we understand who we are, right? And they affect how we relate to the conditions for which we are seeking help. Now, I don't know quite what the effect would be. I mean, I admit that this will have to be somewhat speculative. I don't know quite what the effect would be if it were common for people to be diagnosed with grief disease, whatever we want to call it, okay? But I don't know that the effects would be entirely good. We might come to identify with our grief in a way that I don't think is entirely healthy. That is to say that you know, all of us will, through the course of our lifetimes, grieve, but I'm not sure it's a good thing for us to think of ourselves as grieving individuals or as grief-sick or as stricken with grief or some such thing. I worry that this might stymie people's ability to be resilient and to recover from grief, right? to think of themselves as prone right, to a kind of illness as opposed to simply undergoing a stage of human life. So admittedly, this is speculative, but I think it's an important set of issues to grapple with, right? How would thinking of ourselves as sick with grief, as opposed to merely grieving, alter our understanding of ourselves and our relationship to this condition? I have to say that myself, I worry that the effects would not be salutary. Now, another thing that uh, proponents of the medicalization of grief say, well, you know, being pragmatic here, medicalization will encourage bereaved people to seek out help right, when their grief is particularly hard to manage. And here I'd offer two replies. First, that this seems to assume that the right sort of help in the case of grief that is difficult to manage is medical in nature. I'm not sure that all grief problems are really medical in nature. Seems to me that one might find a great deal of help uh, when one's grief is troubling from individuals whose credentials aren't medical. Their credentials might simply be that they are your friend or that they are your priest or that they are uh, um, somebody who's gone through grief recently or I don't know, crazily enough, maybe they're a philosopher of grief. I don't know. But the assumption here that, you know, the help that one needs is medical in nature needs some defense. But more than this, It's still the case, right, that medical illness tends to be stigmatized in many societies. Many cultures do not look very um, kindly, right, on individuals with diagnosed medical illness and, in fact, invite uh, those individuals not to look very kindly upon themselves. So while it may be true that some people, upon learning that their grief may be an illness, uh, would be encouraged to seek help, it seems to me equally likely that some people would be discouraged from seeking help. I think this may be particularly true uh, with respect to certain kinds of facts about help seeking and gender. So we know from a fairly wide literature about mental health and help seeking that men, right, generally speaking, are more reluctant right, to seek medical, uh, mental health assistance than women are. My guess is that were grief medicalized, this might have a particularly detrimental effect on the willingness of men to seek out help. After all, this is to invite men to see their condition as, well, frankly, a kind of malady, which I imagine some men, uh, based on their self-conceptions at least, probably would not want to perceive themselves in this way or have other people perceive them in this way. So I don't think that this is an argument that holds uh, much water in my eyes. It may be true that some would be encouraged to seek help, but I think on balance, the effects would be um, perhaps negative. Now, it's really important that you appreciate what it is that I'm saying and what I'm not saying, okay? I've given you some reasons, I hope, to think that we shouldn't medicalize grief, and in the end, we should not be uh, speaking here of a grief pandemic. That's to invite a misunderstanding. But it is true that even on my view, grief should be thought of as a clinically significant fact about people, okay? What do I mean when I say this? Well, of course, grief will sometimes be the basis for or a cause of clinically significant conditions that should be treated. There are grieving people who will develop depression, anxiety, that's clinically significant. But notice that what we're saying there is not that they're sick with grief, or rather saying that they're sick due to grief, at least sometimes. That's a subtle difference, but an important one. After all, it seems to me to matter quite a lot how we speak and think about our own condition and how medical uh, professionals, medical officials, speak to us and represent to us our condition, okay? So just as prolonged unemployment can cause depression, right? It Seems quite reasonable to think that in that case, a person should be eligible for and should perhaps seek out um, medical help. But we shouldn't think of them as having unemployment-related depression or some such thing. They simply are depressed, right? Likewise, in the case of grief, I have no uh, uh, unwillingness to acknowledge that grief can be a source right, of other clinically significant conditions, but I think we should hesitate to think that grief is the illness in question. Okay. Now with that, that kind of brings my arguments uh, against the medicalization of grief uh, to their conclusion. That said, I will admit that I seem to be fighting a losing battle. Uh, Recently in the United States, uh, the primary group of psychiatrists have decided that they will be entering, uh, inserting into their next uh, published versions of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual Mental Disorders, something they're calling prolonged grief disorder. Um, you can go find out your, uh, for yourself exactly what prolonged grief disorder would, would consist in. Um, but I don't think these arguments that I'm making are, are futile nevertheless. Uh, and it does seem to me that just as we might uh, medicalize grief, that is to say come to treat it as a, um, as a mental illness, it seems equally possible that we could at some day demedicalize it because you're convinced by people like me that it's a bad idea. Okay. Okay. Now. I want to end by saying a little bit about something that I find um, additional consideration I think is important here in thinking about the pandemic from a kind of uh, political perspective. So I've been making a kind of ethical and medical case against medicalizing uh, grief, right? I've suggested that talk of a grief pandemic is misleading and probably should be something that we should resist. But I also think that talk of a grief pandemic carries some political significance too. In what sense do I think that this is politically significant? Well, I think when we're invited to think of grief, uh, this mass grief event that we are facing now as a grief pandemic, we're invited to think of this as a set of disconnected individual pathologies, right? So for each individual, again, who, who has died uh, due to COVID, uh, experts say that there are nine individuals who are um, uh, grieving as a consequence. And I think to think of this as a uh, pandemic is to think that there is a set of disconnected right? Individual pathologies, you know, perhaps nine individuals, each of whom for whatever reason (laughs) managed to be grieving in ways uh, that may not be good for them. But I think that we should instead think that what people are doing in the pandemic when they're grieving is exhibiting a non-pathological response to various sorts of collective failures. That is to say, I worry that thinking uh, in terms of grief, uh, grief pandemic perhaps lets us and our leaders off the hook. That is to say, it invites us to overlook that what we're really dealing with is widespread moral injury as opposed to a set of disconnected individual pathologies. So to put it a kind of different way, I think when we uh, think of uh, this mass grief event as a grief pandemic, we're invited to think that the problem is not out there in the world, namely that a whole bunch of people whose deaths were probably preventable died anyway, but that the problem is, so to speak, in here. And this is, I think, a tendency that many um, skeptics about medicalization have noted, that medicalization results in sick people, and as a result, tends to uh, neglect the prospect that these are healthy people living in a sick world. And in my own estimation, I think those who are grieving uh, in response to the pandemic, even if their grief is very distressing and difficult for them, are exhibiting what I would say is a healthy response to a rather sick episode in the world. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk backslash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.